Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Stressed out? Need a little self-care at home? CBD Healthcare Company skincare products deliver soothing relief and relaxation. Treat yourself. You deserve it. The CBD and CBD Healthcare Company's world-class formulated skincare products enhances the effectiveness of your typical skincare regimen, reduce the signs of wrinkles, remove dead skin cells and impurities, bring your skin to a healthy and radiant state. Self-care. Skincare at home. Visit CBDHealthCareCompany.com. Skincare products made in the USA. Murder on the Space Coast is brought to you by CBD Healthcare Company, the source you can trust. And now, here's John Torres with Episode 5. Previously, on Murder on the Space Coast, Left to Die. Uh, You can't see the guy in the top middle very well at all. Crosley Green's photo is the darkest. Would you do this today? Well, no. No, ideally I would not. Could she she have picked the wrong person? I don't think she did. This truck now, you got to envision this truck is up. The wheels are big. Yeah. And it's up high. And Chip doesn't have a shirt on. And Chip, his hands are tied behind. He's got the gun. And he throws the passenger side door open and dives, according to her, dives like Superman straight out and he's got the gun and he's evidently going shooting while he's flying through the air with the greatest of ease. I'm John Torres and welcome back to Murder on the Space Coast, Left to Die. Just a warning before we get started. This episode contains adult language and themes and probably is not suitable for children or sensitive listeners. All right, so a few months after Chip Flynn is killed, the Brevard Sheriff's Office brings in Crosley Green and arrests him. He is charged with two counts of robbery, two counts of kidnapping, and of course, one count of murder. Crosley Green was 31 years old at the time with a criminal history. In fact, he'd only just gotten out of prison serving time for 18 months on a drug charge. Now, as you heard at the end of last episode, Crosley seemed genuinely surprised that he was arrested. He kept asking Detective Tom Fair, I'm going to jail? I'm going to jail? And of course, he does go to jail. And while Crosley is in the Brevard County Jail in Sharps, Prosecutor Chris White begins to put together his case against him. Now, forensically speaking, there wasn't much there. Despite supposedly having kidnapped Chip and his girlfriend, Kim Halleck, and driven Chip's truck with them inside from a park to an empty orchard, there is not a single fingerprint of Crosley's on the vehicle. Not on the door handle, not on the grab bar needed to hoist yourself up into it, not on the steering wheel, dash, radio, turn signal, you get the picture. There were also no shell casings found in the Orange Grove, despite the fact that Kim said she heard at least four or five shots as Chip and the black assailant engaged in a shootout. We heard first responder, former deputy Mark Rixey, say this on the last episode. And all these spots she said she heard as she was driving away, there was never any shell casing found, you know? 
Now, I seriously doubt this guy's going to go into pitch black night through an orange grove and pick up all his shell casings, you know? There was also no blood on the scene linking back to Crosley. There is no gun recovered that belongs to Crosley. His fingerprints are also absent from the wallet he was supposed to have taken from Chip. No, instead, what the state has is Kim Halleck's story and her pointing out Crosley Green in a highly suggestive photo lineup. They also have a wonder dog who supposedly tracks a set of footprints from Holder Park that no one ever verifies as belonging to Crosley or anyone else in particular for that matter, to the home of Crosley Green's sister, a place where Crosley and sometimes his brother O'Connor stayed on occasion. The yard was also home to several dogs. And there was something else utterly ridiculous about the dog track which I had not thought of. It was brought to my attention by the reporter who covered the trial for Florida Today in 1990. His name is Robert Coleman and he's now a Miami attorney. I tracked him down late last year and he told me something about the dog track and those footprints that led to the home of Crosley's older sister that I neglected to mention last episode. And that was ridiculous. The judge in that case is a mentor, but he, that was not a good call on his part because, you know, what he did is he allowed into evidence the fact that a police dog had traced, allegedly traced a scent from the park where the abduction allegedly occurred and someone walked to an area that was in the vicinity of Mr. Green's sister, which First of all, I'm not exactly sure how that was relevant, considering that the allegation was that Mr. Green abducted the two individuals from that park and then drove them, uh, I think it was seven miles, to the, uh, the Orange Grove, where right. the victim was killed. How the fact that you have these, this track from the park to an area near Mr. Green's sister is beyond me. I'm not sure why that was allowed into evidence. Did you catch that? The dog supposedly followed footprints from the park to the sister of Crosley Green, but wasn't Green supposed to have driven from the park in Chip Flynn's truck to the orchard where the shooting took place? Yeah, you can't see me, but I'm shaking my head. Let's face it, we're all a little stressed these days. With all the distraction on what we can't do, it's time to do a little self-care at home. CBD Healthcare Company is the source you can depend on for facial, skin care, and muscle relief. Our made-in-the-USA, world-class calming body lotions, recovery creams, and anti-aging serums combine THC-free CBD extract with natural botanicals and known ingredients. CBDHealthCareCompany.com Because taking time for yourself is always a good idea. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left... Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, before we get into just how the state was able to prosecute this case with no evidence, it's important that we try to get to know Crosley Green a bit. I finally had a chance in mid-March 2020 to interview him in person. But before we listen to what he says, I want to offer up a little bit of his family history. And no, I'm not trying to get you to feel sorry for another person in prison who had a rough childhood. This, what Crosley Green went through, takes rough childhoods to a completely new level. Now, I'm leaving out some of the details out of respect for the family. 
Crosley Alexander Green was born on September 11, 1957, the second oldest of his parents' ten children. His mother Constance was only 18 when she gave birth to Crosley. His father, Booker T., was 28 and earned a living picking crops, often having to follow the fruit from Florida to Alabama to New York. Now, when Crosley was eight, a terrible fire destroyed the home they were living in. No one was killed, but the fire burned Crosley's father's face and arms severely. Now, Crosley's mother and father gambled, drank, and fought constantly. And according to court documents, the children may have suffered violence as well. According to Shirley Green, Crosley's half-sister from Booker T's first marriage, she came to live with them when someone murdered her mother with an ice pick in South Carolina. As she told it, there were 13 of them, plus a few other relatives, totaling 17 living in a two-bedroom house in Titusville that had no indoor plumbing and only one big bathtub. Shirley would bathe three of the young children at a time. Now think about that for a second. That's a tough spot to find yourself in, and so it was no surprise that Crosley Green started drinking and taking drugs at the age of 12. Most of the children worked the fields alongside their father, and including Crosley, who, at the age of 17, ran afoul of the law in upstate New York while working as a migrant worker. He served four years there in a juvenile detention center. And it was while Crosley was in that New York detention center that something horrific happened in Titusville. It was April 15, 1977. Now, these are the exact words used by another of Crosley's sisters, Rosemary, to describe what happened that night. Daddy had gotten drunk at the bar and got mugged. Somebody took his money. Me and my mama tried to bring him home, but my mama said to just leave him at the bar. Later that night, my daddy came back home. My sister Dee Dee was nine months pregnant and sleeping on the couch. My mama had left earlier to go back to work. My mama came home about 7 p.m. that night. My daddy was waiting for her in the bedroom. He began to beat her with a shoe and then hit her in the eyes. My daddy said she was lying about where she had been. I got an iron and I hit him with the iron. My daddy grabbed me and threw me against the window where I banged my head real hard. I have seizures now because of my daddy. I managed to get up and grab my mama who was hurt already and tried to get out of the house, but my daddy had locked all the doors. When I turned around, my daddy came out of the room with a gun and bent down on one knee and told my mama, I'm going to kill you, and shot her four times in the chest. My mama dies right there. The police came later, and my daddy ran out in the yard and shot himself in the head in front of the police. He used a 38 caliber pistol. So yes, Crosley's dad murdered his mom and then shot himself in front of his children, something he had apparently threatened many times earlier. Rosemary, who witnessed her mom's murder, spent six years in a mental hospital afterward. According to documents from the New York Detention Center, Crosley blamed himself for not being there to stop it. He rarely spoke of it, and something inside him had changed. When he returned to Titusville, Crosley went to work full-time in the Groves to help support his siblings. From that time on, he became known as Papa Green. He was 20 years old. There are other horrific details, but you get the picture here. Now, here is private investigator and Chicago radio personality Paul Cialino, who first drew attention to Crosley Green's case. I'll get into all that later on. Let's say Green family did not have a good reputation. And the Greens were raised like wolves, man. I mean, there was, like I think, like 10 of them or something. And uh, basically, I think the parents died fairly young, and, and they basically were raising themselves. The thing is, Crosley, like many who grew up under rough circumstances, had nothing to compare his childhood to. 
I've traveled to a lot of places and it always strikes me that some of the happiest children I've encountered were in countries like Haiti and Zambia. Extremely poor places where children grow up with very little. So I was not surprised to hear Crosley say some of the things he did when we finally met. But I was also surprised by Crosley himself. I've interviewed a lot of prisoners and, well, they are usually pretty rough or at least rough around the edges. Not Crosley. He was extremely thoughtful, articulate, and even sort of tender. I asked him about his childhood. While he grew up in Mims, here on the Space Coast, Crosley said he spent as much time as he could up in South Carolina with his grandmother and other relatives. I grew up in Mims, you know? It's just the idea that when I was growing up, you know, it's like me, myself, I like the outdoors. I like the country. It was fresher. I mean, I didn't have to worry about getting hit by a car or somebody coming around doing something stupid around the out here or anything like that, you know? So every chance I got, I would go to Carolina. Even when I grew up to be a man, if I, if I get the time, I'd jump and just take off and go to South Carolina. Gotcha. You know, people, people's up there because it's out in the country. And you'd fish or hunt or whatever? Fish, hunt, do whatever you want to do. But mainly you just got, you out there, you just don't have to worry about speeding cars or anything like that, you know. I asked him as a child what he thought he wanted to be when he grew up. When he mentions his mother, Crosley immediately teared up. What I wanted to be when I grew up. You know, that never did really, I never did really take time out to think about all of that because I was pretty much like a, a family child, you know. I would like hang out with my mom. I love hanging out with my mom. <clears throat> I love hanging out with my father. And I love hanging out with my sisters. So I, I really know what I want to do. Like my father, every chance I got when I was growing up, I'd go to work with him. I used to sit on his lap while he's working driving his tractors and stuff. You know, I used to sit there the whole day, just ride around with him. So I didn't know what I wanted to do. My mom, oh man, she go fishing. Okay, I go fishing with her. You know, I just, well, I was like, they can always depend on me and say, well, he'll go, let's go get him. And I'll be back there, I'll be waiting on him to come get me. You see, so I had a, that's that the type of person I was. Just being around his mother and father were enough. So despite what the records might say about a tough childhood, Crosley had fond memories of growing up, though it wasn't easy. His father picked crops and Crosley did too for a while. The migratory work involved following the crops up to Alabama and even New York. I asked him about his numerous siblings, two brothers and eight sisters, and whether he has a favorite. There was no hesitation when he mentioned Celestine Peterkin, who recently passed away. He tried finding the right words to explain the bond that they shared. Close in age, you know, I followed behind her. It wasn't just that we was close in age. It was just that it was, I don't, I can't explain it, but it's a bond. It's a bond with, you know, you got some siblings, there's a bond between some siblings that go from one all the way through. It don't make no difference how long it takes, it just go carry on. And that's what it was between me and her. Even when we was growing up, I would hang out, we would hang out together, you know what I'm saying? Even when she got married, I, I would still hang out if she needed something or needed something done. Well, she can always count on me, you know, and I can always count on her. Even to this day, she stood by me the last 
until passing days, you know. See, that was that was my rock. You know what I'm saying? I don't know what it was between me and her, but it was unbreakable. We'll hear more from Crosley later on. As I said earlier, I just wanted to give you a sense of who he is. Now back to 1989, and prosecutors are working to put together a case against him. And while you've heard two of the initial investigators on the scene say that Kim Halleck should have been considered more seriously as a suspect in this case, she wasn't. Rather, she was considered a victim. This is Prosecutor Wayne Holmes from one of the many hearings in this case, reminding everyone that Chip Flynn was not the only victim. But here, there is a separate victim. A victim who was terrorized, a victim who was kidnapped and removed to another location where the murder occurred, a victim who was also robbed. Okay, so despite all the problems and questions with Kim's fantastic tale about what happened, and the suspicions of the first officers on the scene, the state moved forward against Crosley Green. Not only that, but they are going to seek the death penalty. Again, here is the man who covered the trial, Robert Coleman. There was no physical evidence that really tied Mr. Green to the scene of this crime. And they never really traced the bullet to figure out if it came from the victim's gun or if it came from another gun. They never found the murder weapon. There was no fingerprints on the car that was allegedly driven by Mr. Green for seven miles. I mean, the whole there was nothing in this case except for this dog and the, the girlfriend's um, in-court identification of someone, you know, who she picked out of a photographic lineup, which, I'm sorry, was rather suggestive. No evidence, no problem. Remember a few episodes ago and all throughout season two, the state relied heavily on jailhouse informants who would say anything to see their sentences reduced or charges lowered. Well, in this case, because many of Crosley's family and friends lived outside of the law, it seemed there would be no shortage of potential witnesses for prosecutor Chris White. Crosley's sister, Sheila Green, was facing 20 years on a federal drug charge, as was her baby daddy, Lonnie Hillary. Well, guess who testified in court that Crosley admitted the murder to them? That's right, Crosley's own sister. And if you're Crosley's trial attorney, Rob Parker, I mean, how do you overcome someone's own sister selling you down the river? Parker said that the name of Crosley's sister, Sheila Green, was added late to the witness list and gave him a sinking feeling. What she had to say was even worse. It was at that point, Parker said, that he tried to convince Crosley to take a plea deal. And I think when, we, when I talk with Crosley later, uh, and this is all part of the record, I explained to him they called his sister. And when they called his sister, she was very adamant that he had confessed to her. And so we had a break, and I sat down with Crosley, and I said, listen, it's time to cut our losses here. That was your sister. Right. Um, no matter what, and as good as I think I am, I didn't feel like I handled the impeachment as well as it should have been handled. Um, and I said, I, she, she hurt you. We, we got hurt there. I said, they're offering you second degree with a firearm, and they want you to agree to two stacked minimum mans. You'll probably be in prison eight years. He said, I didn't do it. He said, I'll take one minimum man, he said, and be out in three, but I'm not, I didn't do that. I don't want to be in there eight or however. It would have been something like that yeah. under the old guidelines. And uh, he said, I didn't do it. I said, okay. 
Brevard prosecutors never revealed what kinds of sweetheart deals they would cut with rapists and killers to come and testify. Nothing was ever done on the record. And so, when Sheila Green and her boyfriend came in, no one was privy to why. In fact, no one would know why for the next several years. For now, here is Private Eye Paul Cialino. It was outrageous government misconduct on that case. Outrageous. I mean, outrageous, illegal, improper, unethical, call it whatever you want to call it. I mean, it was, let's convict this guy, and no matter how many rules we have to break. We'll get a lot deeper into Chilino's claims next episode. Anyway, that was pretty much the way the trial went. It wasn't only Crosley's sister. Several witnesses all facing major prison time came forward to say that Crosley Green had confessed the crime to them. The guy who sold Chip Flynn the truck, Timmy Curtis, said the sketch drawn from Kim's memory of their attacker looked like Crosley, and that one of Crosley's own family members intimated to him that maybe Crosley was the killer. That, along with Sheila Green's testimony, may have been the final nail in the coffin. But Crosley's fate may have very likely been sealed during a very dramatic moment in court when Kim Halleck was asked to identify the black assailant. She sat tall in her witness box seat and pointed right at Crosley for the all-white jury to see. So there, you had it. The only other witness to the crime pointed right at Crosley to say that he did it. Former Florida Today court reporter Robert Coleman. They were certainly talking about it within the uh, legal community. There were a couple things that sort of stand out in that case. Yeah. Um, one of them was the eyewitness account. Um, you know, the, the girlfriend of the murder victim who may or may not have actually been the perpetrator of the crime. And I do remember um, her identification of the witness in the courtroom. Uh, you know, and it's really not tough to like point out the black man who's sitting next to the, his defense attorney at, at counsel table. <laughs> um, and that was one of the things I remember about it. Uh, there, and there's actually a picture in Florida today at that time of the, of the moment where she pointed out the, the Mr. Green. And remember, this is the South. And whether you want to believe it or not, race likely played a big part in this case. There was another thing in there. There was a racial aspect to this case. Because, and that really did come through at the time, too. It, you know, Mims is not a, you know, is, is not a wealthy area. Right. Um, it, there, it had a reputation as, you know, sort of having a lot of, you know, people with violent individuals with criminal records and that sort of thing. And then, but Chris White, in his closing argument, made a point of talking about how, you know, the girlfriend was able to get away, and if not, she would have been killed or raped. And, you know, saying that a white woman is going to be raped by a black man just sort of, you know, really ties into, you know, Southern racism in a big way. Yeah. And in, you know, at that time, it didn't occur to me that this, you know, how sort of, what a dog whistle that was. You know, in, with hindsight, I, I'm like, I can't believe I didn't pick up on that. But at the time, it was just kind of something that was almost standard and we didn't think about it. So in retrospect, yeah, race had a lot to do with this. I asked Crosley's trial attorney, Rob Parker, about the racial aspect of it. And while trying to give me an answer and dealing with his enormous yet gentle Doberman named Max, he revealed something that I found to be utterly remarkable. And now, 
socially the racial implications, I guess, in this case. And uh, you get this young white girl who says, a black guy did it. Um, it's almost like uh, to, to kill a mockingbird, Atticus Finch, um, was, that a, was he an unpopular you know, client for you in town? Like, did you, you oh, yeah, he, was, uh, the, he had a reputation with law enforcement. Come here. Come on. That's the dog, Max. <laughs> He's making an appearance on the podcast. Uh, yeah, the police, once they knew it was him, he had been, been kind of a troublemaker in the community, even when he was in high school. That train got going, They and it just kept on going. Yeah. And so did I, you ever get any, any sort of like backlash you know, for being his lawyer? Or? I didn't get any backlash. The father had some doubts. Um, Chip Swaller? You mean? Yeah, yeah, because he had come to me and made contact with me a couple of times uh, on his own and wanted to talk about the case, the facts of the case, and and why I was doing this. And I just think he was troubled mm. by the whole thing. But, you know, that was just, that was me. That was my conclusion. Um, he actually referred me a client. And brought her to right to my my office. I mean, that's kind of strange, no? It's, it's odd, yeah. Wow. And then there would be some questions. Just say, well, have you heard anything? Uh, yeah. You know, this. No, sir, I haven't. And you know, thank you very much. And I was always a little troubled by the whole by, by it. Chip's own father had doubts, according to Crosley's lawyer. I'm not sure I've ever heard anything like that before in any case. Now, Chip's parents have both since passed away. Stressed out. Need a little self-care at home? CBD Healthcare Company's skincare products deliver soothing relief and relaxation. Treat yourself. You deserve it. The CBD and CBD Healthcare Company's world-class formulated skincare products enhances the effectiveness of your typical skincare regimen. Reduce the signs of wrinkles. Remove dead skin cells and impurities. Bring your skin to a healthy and radiant state. Self-care. Skincare at home. Visit CBDHealthCareCompany.com. Skincare products made in the USA. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so what was Crosley Green's defense? Well, according to Parker and court documents, Green was trying to present an alibi defense. Crosley was supposedly at his cousin's home for part of the night of the murder, and then spent the night with a woman by the name of Lori Raines. The problem, according to many in this case, is that Reigns was married, a heavy drug user, and refused to take part in the trial. But it was always going to be tough finding support in the community for any member of the Green family, at least according to private eye Paul Cialino. There are no such thing as uh, witnesses who gleefully come forward to offer assistance and help. <laughs> very, very seldom. Mm-hmm. And when they do, look out, because they usually have an agenda. Because everybody's afraid of the authorities, they're afraid of the sheriff, the state's attorney. Uh, you, you're dealing often with a criminal element, okay? Or, or people who are very poor and have no, you know, uh, no formal education. Uh, all they know are just they got street smarts. And they know 
getting involved in a case involving the Green family was not a good idea. Attorney Parker listed eight witnesses that he planned to call to verify Crosley's whereabouts the night of the fatal shooting. The first was a man named James Carnes, who was allegedly with Crosley and his cousin that night before Crosley went to go see Lori Raines. But it turned out to be a complete disaster. Here is Rob Parker discussing the married woman first and then what happened when James Carnes took the stand. He said he was with uh, Lori, somebody during this. I couldn't get her to... We had an alibi also, and our alibi fell apart on the stand. I mean, it was really embarrassing because there was a guy, we had him all all batted down on the times and everything. And then when he's right in the middle of the stand, he goes, wait a minute, that's not right. Oh, no. <laughs> no. He said, no, that, that TV show didn't come on at that time. It came on earlier. No. And then he kind of right there in front of the jury just remembered. You must have wanted to cry or something right there. I oh. just went, wow, okay. Robert Coleman remembered that incident after reading one of the clips he wrote about the case some 30 years ago. There was also some serious concern about um, the alibi witnesses in that case. And uh, there was another um, clip I noticed which reminded me of what happened when they presented one of the alibi witnesses for Mr. Green because he had this total meltdown on the stand and gave, you know, was a horrible witness for Mr. Green. Mm. Um, and I'm not really quite sure why that was. No one really knows what happened with Corns, and we can't ask him because he died in 1997 after a long illness. But at that point in the trial, Parker said he abandoned his alibi defense for fear that other witnesses would falter on the stand. Instead, he decided to concentrate on trying to poke enough holes in the prosecution's case and the credibility of the state's witnesses. It wasn't enough, and it did not take the jury very long to come back with a unanimous guilty verdict. In fact, I understand the jury was only out for about four hours. And after a sentencing hearing, Crosley Alexander Green was sentenced to die in a Florida's electric chair by an 8-4 to four vote. Next time on Murder on the Space Coast, Left to Die. Crosley Green learns how to survive on death row while the state's case begins to unravel as concerned citizens and private investigators hold a magnifying glass to the evidence and testimony against Crosley Green. And you're brought to the state's friend's office, and who do you meet there? Uh, Chris White. Who else is present besides you and him? That's it. What occurs in that office at that time? Uh, he informs me that uh, he wants me to uh, testify in the Papa Green case. Looking at that photograph, or a sketches rendition of, of a man, of a, of a black man, an obvious uh, African-American, does that individual look anything like Crosley Papa Green? No, it doesn't. Tim, have you ever made a statement to any individual, black or white, law enforcement or not law enforcement, that that photograph looked like Crosley Green? Yes, I did. I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and you can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And for more information on this case and web exclusives, please go to floridatoday.com. Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John A. Torres. The producer is Rob Landers, and the editor is Mara Bellaby. Thanks for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network. Let's face it. 
We're all a little stressed these days. With all the distraction on what we can't do, it's time to do a little self-care at home. CBD Healthcare Company is the source you can depend on for facial, skin care, and muscle relief. Our made-in-the-USA, world-class calming body lotions, recovery creams, and anti-aging serums combine THC-free CBD extract with natural botanicals and known ingredients. CBDHealthCareCompany.com Because taking time for yourself is always a good idea. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.